Well, good morning again to those here, to those watching on Facebook, and let's all join together in opening up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. In early 2019, there was a feature article in the Friday edition of the New York Times written by a woman named Julia Shears. The title of the article was Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. Subtitle was, quote, My fundamentalist childhood was built around the fear of sin. My daughters don't even know the word. It's actually an article well worth your time to track down and read if you can, but it might not just be for the reason you initially think. Because Julia's story is not merely a snapshot of the growing mentality of new parents today in a postmodern, post-Christian world. But for me, at least, it was more of a story, a tragic story, of how she was and recounted her memories of being physically and emotionally abused by her fear-based church, by her religious parents. And her memories are how sin was so centrally focused in her church, in her home. It was all anybody talked about. And, and, and the sin of the world, and the fear of the sin of the world, and then literally beating the sin out of themselves. Again, it's, it is a tragic story, probably one that's way more common than we might think. A story of how teaching about sin drove her away from Jesus instead of bringing her to Jesus. And now as she raises the next generation, and it's her turn to raise kids, she refuses to talk about sin. And I want to put the quote, um, I think we're going to have it on the screen, that most took out to me. I read it again last week and honestly almost got emotional reading it. She wrote this. Recounting her childhood. God was a megaphone bleeding in my head. You're bad, you're bad, you're bad. I had reoccurring nightmares of malevolent winds tornadoing through my bedroom. A metaphor I now realize for an invisible and vindictive God. There's two ways to get teaching about sin wrong. The first is to not teach about sin at all. The second, and equally destructive, is to teach about sin without the grace of Jesus Christ. The first wrong is often committed by the world, but the second one is often committed by the church. But either way you slice it, sin for most people is a very familiar word, and yet it's one that I think we have so many, and certainly the world around us has so many misconceptions of. Like, what does it mean for someone to sin? What should you do when you sin? How about this for the church? How do we think about sin in the life of believers? So we often talk, and I hope rightfully so, that when we are saved, we are saved from sin. But it didn't take long for any of us, after becoming saved, to realize, oh my goodness, I still sin. So what's up with that? Why don't we talk as much about that? How do we make sense of being saved from sin for all of eternity? 
while still doing it regularly. Some people don't take sin seriously enough in their lives. For others, sin blankets us with shame, like a boulder on our shoulders that we can never be free from, no matter how many sermons we hear about how Jesus frees us from it all. Some say we don't talk about sin enough in the church. Others say we talk about sin way too much. This is church. It's beautiful day outside. This should be positive. It should be uplifting. I should walk out of this room feeling good about myself. Um, the world is so negative. Why do we have to talk about sin in church? You're kind of ruining the environment here. So do you get the picture? Like, do you know what I mean by that? Like, Sin is so familiar, but you kind of just start asking some questions, and very quickly we find sin can be very, very confusing. Well, that's where John is going to turn after the prologue of his letter. And that's where we will go, and by God's grace, like coming upon um, like an oasis in the desert, we have the opportunity to clear the fog a bit, to untangle the web of sin, and by God's grace, we're going to see Jesus this morning. And I hope you're ready for that. And this is a short passage. It's first chapter, first John chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 5, where we left off last week, and we're going to read through the end of the first chapter, which is verse 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If you recall from last week, John is writing this letter as the only surviving apostle in the church. And he's writing to a series of churches um, that is either two or three generations removed from Jesus' earthly ministry. About 50 years after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended back to the Father. And he said he is writing primarily to proclaim and bear witness to this person and work of Jesus Christ. This, this one person with two natures. He is, he's fully God and he is fully man. And, and we said last week, one of the purposes of his letter, why he's writing it, is to promote holiness and right living to a church that is seemingly drifting in their desire for holiness. Where obedience and the desire for it has gotten watered down. So that is where John goes. After now his prologue, he addresses this topic of sin. So that tells you something. The first thing in this letter, he's going to unpack sin. But he's going to do so in a way that leads us to Christ and not away from him. And so if we have some confusion about sin, if, I, if you resonate with some of those questions that I opened um, in the introduction of how we kind of view and think about it today, we can take some solace in the fact that the church has always struggled with this. That right away, within the first century, there seemed to be a lot of confusion. And so John's going to be very deliberate about how he's going to go about this. And that he's going to begin with a statement, almost a declaration. 
of God's character, and then he's going to follow it with three appeals. If you notice while I was reading, there was a phrase that kept coming up. The phrase was, if we say. He did it in verse 6, he did it in verse 8, he did it in verse 10. And the implication is that he is hearing that churches are saying these kinds of things. And it's coming out of believers. And, and, and these things were, were very much being said back then. And, and as we'll find out, they are still very much being said today. And so he feels hard-pressed in his old age to sit down and write this letter and get it out to help clear the fog. So that's our outline. There's going to be a declaration followed by three appeals. So first, the declaration Again, verse 5, this is the message we heard from him that we proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Here's the most important thing to know about the Christian life in general and about the topic of sin in particular. It begins and ends with God. Somehow, All too often, when we talk about sin, God gets pushed out of the picture. And it's about us and what we need to do and how bad we are or how good we are. But that's not how the Bible ever talks about sin. He talks about it in the context of beginning and ending with God. And that God's character is the grounding, it is the basis for any discussion about sin. God is the reason we call sin, sin. And as we'll see, he's the one who, for the joy set before him, delivers us from sin. Let me put it another way. Everything we do, think about, say, everything that we will be held account for someday, good or bad, flows from who he is and what he has done. Which is why I say, as often as I can, and I can smuggle this point into every sermon that I can, is this, is that knowing God, like who he is, his character, his attributes, knowing and treasuring him will do more to shape your life than any self-help book you can find on Amazon's bestseller list. And maybe those have their place, and they can be edifying in some ways, but nothing will do more to change you, consume you, that will be edifying for your life than to focus all the more on who God is. And here, John says, we proclaim what we heard. Remember, he's always talking about being an eyewitness. Last week, we heard, we saw, we touched, we heard, we saw, we've seen it. He kept saying it over and over again. And so this is what they heard. God is light. It's the first of three God is statements that John will make in this letter. Down the road in chapter 4, we'll see that God writes God is love and God is spirit. But what John is saying here when he says God is light is that God is the standard of moral perfection. He's not merely saying that God has light or that God is a light because even the brightest light in the universe, the sun, has its dark spots. But God is light. The word light occurs 275 times in the Bible, often associated with who God is. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and salvation, whom shall I fear? Then in John's gospel, John, who's writing again this letter, he wrote in his gospel, and he was the only of the gospel writers to record Jesus' words in John 8, verse 12, 
when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So when John declares here that God is light, he's not only saying he's the standard of moral perfection, although he is, but he's also the source of life that comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So he's not just a standard, he's the source that taps us into that light and removes us from that darkness. He's the standard and he's the source. And so the way they talk about sin, again, is not to begin with sin. Whether you're raising children, whether you're witnessing to an unbeliever, or whether you're encouraging a weaker brother or sister in, in the faith who are really struggling under the weight of sin, the way to start talking about it is never to start with sin. But begin with God. Begin with his holiness, his moral goodness, his truth, his perfect righteousness. God is light. And as we'll see throughout this letter, John will often support a statement by immediately providing the contrast. And again, if you, if you take note of your own conversations throughout the day, we do this all the time. We say, it's like this, it's not like this. And that's what John does here. He, um, he says, uh, in, in the verse number five, he says, just as light is associated with God, in him there is no darkness at all. And so light, often associated with God in the Bible, darkness is often associated in a metaphor for sin and lostness. But there's nothing in God that indulges in evil. There's nothing in God that winks at sin. Nothing in God that overlooks darkness. The Greek translation for that final phrase in verse 6 is literally, there's no darkness in him, none. It's a double negative, no darkness, none. In English, makes for bad grammar, but great theology. And I think back to the author of that New York Times article I referenced earlier, Julia. And honestly, I'm, I even got caught off guard of how grieved I was in reading that over again. That, that her church made it, so her view of God was shaped and determined by her view of sin. But the Bible does the direct opposite. The Bible's view of sin is shaped and determined by its view of God. And specifically, that God is light, and there's no darkness in him, none. And that's where it begins. That's the grounding for now, these three appeals he's going to give to these churches that all begin with the phrase, if we say. So appeal number one. Verse 6, if we say we have no fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The first question we need to ask here is, who is John writing to? Is John writing to unbelievers or to believers? I think he's primarily writing to believers because he's addressing this to the church. And so I think the way he views it is, I'm writing to believers professing believers at least, knowing there are unbelievers listening in. And so addressing this, I think John knows that all people fit in one of four categories. And people from each category are going to be reading this letter. I'm going to have the categories up on the screen. All people are one of four categories. Number one, people who think they are saved, and they are. Number two, people who think they are saved, and they are not. 
Number three, people who don't think they are saved, and they're not. And number four, people who don't think they're saved, and they are. All people will fit into one of these four categories. And the goal, I think, of John, and the goal of discipleship and evangelism is to get people to number one. That's where we want. We want people to be saved and have an assurance of salvation, but everybody you meet will be in one of those four categories. Certainly, everybody, uh, certainly those four categories are represented in those reading John's letter. I also view every sermon this way. How do I think about preaching? I'm preaching to the church. I'm preaching to believers, knowing there are unbelievers listening in. And there's two kinds of unbelievers. Those who are not saved, and they know they're not saved. But more dangerously, those who think they're saved, but they're not. So it's like walking a tightrope for John, and we're going to see him kind of nuance his way through this discussion, because it's a very confusing discussion, but he wants to clear the fog. And it's, again, the same way in preaching, to give one message, one sermon, knowing there are people from each category every given week listening in. And ultimately, it's be faithful to the text, and trust that the Spirit will do what the Spirit will do to apply to minds and hearts of people accordingly. But John is concerned here. He's very clearly concerned that the church is drifting from the pursuit of holiness and that they're professing faith to the world in God while not living out that faith in action. So he uses that word fellowship again. We talked about a fellowship last week. When he says, if we have fellowship with him while we're walking in darkness, he says we're lying. We're not practicing truth. We're not living it out. Fellowship, remember, it's an intimate connection with someone. It's, it's a communion. It's a closeness, a sharing, and a common love. And so in Christ, we are saved into a fellowship with God vertically and saved into a fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ horizontally. That in Jesus' death and resurrection, he atoned for, or he paid for our sin on the cross. And he declared victory over that sin at the empty tomb. For so whoever would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus, they are saved from the power of sin, even while the presence of sin still remains. Let me say it another way. In Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. But we still struggle with sin. And by the Spirit within us, we are given the motivation and the strength to battle. The struggle is real, and it's real until glory. I've said every other week for the last three months, every Christian is a struggling Christian. Amen? We're all struggling against sin in the presence of it. So he's writing primarily to believers. He is saying, and listen closely, this is important. Again, it's going to feel like we're playing wordsmith here, but we're not. He's trying to clear the fog. He's saying when a Christian sins against God, it does not break our sonship, but it does break our fellowship. Meaning sin in the life of a believer does not remove their salvation because we believe once you are truly saved, you will never lose that salvation, but it's possible to break our fellowship with God in sin. Commentator David Allen says it like this, quote, God does not take his sinning children out of his family when they sin any more than you disown your children when they disobey. 
But when our words that profess Christ, a love for Christ, a knowledge of Christ, do not match our actions to walk in Christ, our lives tell a lie. That's what he's saying. It doesn't mean we're not saved, but we're not living in devotion to the Lord in the way that we are proclaiming. And then again, John loves giving the contrast. So what's the contrast of appeal number one? But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we experience the joy of fellowship with him and one another. And the basis of this intimate fellowship is the blood of Jesus poured out for us, cleansing us, restoring us. So let me pause here and address a question, one that I have often had and I imagine I hear from a lot of people and I imagine some of you here might have this question. If all Christians still sin, how can we tell if someone is saved but not in fellowship with God or if they're really not a Christian at all? And I think it boils down to this question. When you evaluate your life or you're close enough to, to somebody to be able to speak and to evaluate somebody's other's life, are you struggling with sin or submitting to it? Christians will always struggle against sin, and for some more than others, it will be a massive struggle. But a Christian will not submit to sin and revel in it. It's a struggle against sin versus living a life that is directly contrary to the gospel, that is marked by habitual sin. That's just on a regular basis, and there's no conscience, there's no repentance, there's just open and defiant. And if you're professing a Christian while your life is marked by that, that's where maybe you can begin to tell the difference. But ultimately, we don't know in the lives of others. And we can have massive blind spots in our own lives, which is why being a member of a local church is so vital. Because when the Bible talks about membership, it talks about having brothers and sisters who have eyes on you, and you have eyes on them, and we're able to spot one another's blind spots. And Jesus says he's given the authority to the church, the keys to loose and bind, meaning to affirm salvation in the lives of people based on what they can, based on fruit they see, and then point out um, to somebody who is professing faith, but their lives a contradiction to that, to approach that. That's Matthew 18. If a brother sins against you, approach him. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, take it to the elders of the church. This is one of the many reasons why membership is so important, because we can justify things so easily to ourselves. And the, and the covenant with other people who have agreed to have eyes on us. So that's the first appeal. Second appeal, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So this might feel strange to bring up this point, or this question, this far into the sermon, but what is sin? What is it? How would you define it? There's many different ways and aspects. I think simply put, I think the most simply put and I think faithful definition is sin means to miss the mark. 
You can think back to your child, childhood days or maybe even recently this summer. Did you ever do archery? Or perhaps you enjoy a game of darts. If, if, if God's moral perfection is the bullseye, then sin is missing that mark. It doesn't matter if you're just a hair off or if you didn't even hit the board. Sin is sin. It's missing the mark. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the reason why Paul can confidently say all is because the Bible tells us that people don't become sinners once they sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. Meaning we've all been born with a sin nature. And a sin nature means we are born with a propensity and a bent to sin. And I'm sure especially new parents, you're, you're, the, the preciousness of a newborn, you're like, no way, this is a sinner. Uh, just wait two years. <laughs> just wait two to three years. And, and it just will be no question. That we were born with a propensity. We don't have to learn it. We don't have to be taught it. Because we've inherited it from our parents. And they've inherited it from their parents. And you can trace that all the way back to our original parents. The fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Which is why John, in the second appeal, says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And again, remembering he's running primarily to believers, um, he, he is affirming, again here, that to, to walk in darkness, remember appeal number one, is to, be, is, is to lie, um, but, but, but to say now I have no sin, and I'm just killing it in every area of life, and I've removed sin from my life, he says, you're also a liar. And while I, it's, I don't know if I ever have come across a believer who has said, I don't sin anymore. Done. Got it. Perfect. I've heard people who have been told by a couple others in their lives that that is true, um, but I've personally never met it. But there are more subtle ways to deceive ourselves here. Let me share quickly two. Uh, number one would just be simply not taking ownership of our sin. It's not our fault. There are other factors that caused us to sin. If you had my job, if you were married to my spouse, if you had my in-laws, you'd understand. I think God does too. Well, the fault relies with government regulations or systems that are in place where, where we just say individual responsibility is, gets completely thrown out the window. So when we act in sin, how often we say well, yeah, but. And we deflect the blame. And again, we inherited that. All the way back to Adam and Eve. God came to Adam. Adam said, is this woman you gave me? Oh, Adam. Wrong answer. And then she goes to Eve. Well, it's the serpent that was in the garden, right? That God that you created in some way. So like just deflecting blame. It wasn't my fault. And this is what John says is what we do to deceive ourselves. We make ourselves believe that our sin is justifiable because of the environment and the factors that we're in. That's the first way I think we can be guilty of this. Number two is what I would just call cognitive dissonance. Big phrase, let me explain it. Because it's related to the false teaching of Gnosticism that was spreading through the church that we talked about last week. This is an aspect of Gnostic teaching that is, I think, still very present in our world today. 
Remember we talked about Gnosticism last week where um, they believed that the body was evil and physical matter was evil, but the soul was good. In some cases, that led people to punish their own bodies and neglect it. But in most cases, it was a belief that enabled them to justify sin of the flesh because if your body is evil and your spirit is good, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Rules don't matter. Doesn't matter if you get drunk or do drugs. It's just affecting your body. Your soul is still good. Sex outside of marriage is normal. It's fine because that's a body thing. It's not a soul thing. Cursing or gossiping, that's par for the course. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. And again, it's the body. I still have my faith in Christ. That doesn't really affect me. My soul is still good, even when I talk that way, and sometimes, again, due to situations that are beyond my control, we might say. Having racist thoughts, or practicing racism, or supporting racism where you see it. It's okay. My soul is with Jesus, and I know that. This isn't that big of a deal. That's cognitive dissonance. Having inconsistent thoughts or beliefs that, are, that dictate our behavior. And it's why, again, this is not just a first century problem. It's why so many people claim to be a Christian, but then don't give any thought to how that should shape the way they live, the way they talk, the way they act, the way they pursue relationships. And John's saying we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. A Christian who justifies sin without confessing it to the Lord is like a man getting a terminal diagnosis from his doctor but refusing to believe or do anything about it. And Satan is overjoyed at the times that he can break fellowship between father and child, between us and God. Satan is both the tempter and the accuser. He wants to draw us away from the Lord and entice us to sin. And then once you do, he is the first one to then go accuse you of that sin before the Lord. So this might be a terrible idea to uh, use uh, a story of my son to illustrate what Satan does. But just hang with me here. Um, I love my kids, right? I know it might not seem it in this sermon. Really do. But, but, but he, he got into this phase. He got smart enough where he knew he could goat his sister into doing something and then turn around and tell mom or dad and get her in trouble right away. He's the attempter, and he's the accuser, right? And Brindley's kind of tougher than him, right? She's got like a tough, like, right hook, and he's, you know, so he, he'll kind of draw her and press her buttons, and bam, she gets him, and then it's mom and dad. He's the tempter, and then he's the accuser. Love my son, Caden, but that's an illustration of what Satan does. And we all have this sin nature, and we struggle from it even though we've been saved from it. So what do we do when we know this is real for us? Again, John provides us the remedy. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 is a vital verse for every believer every day of your life. Circle it, highlight it, post it, draw it out, do it all. 1 John 1, 9. Because while sin is a fact of life, even for believers, it does not have to prevent fellowship with God when it is confessed. 
So we answered what is sin, so what is confession? You know what confession literally means? It means saying the same thing as. So confessing sin is agreeing with God that something we thought, said, or did was wrong. It's not sorry you got caught. It's not sorry that you're facing consequences. It's sorry that you went against God and agreeing with him that it was wrong. And it bears repeating, again, for the believer, confession doesn't affect sonship, where if you don't confess, you're no longer saved, but it affects fellowship. It impacts the communion we feel with God and with others who we've sinned against, which is why we should confess first and foremost to God, but also to those we sinned against, because we've also broken fellowship with them. But here's the best news of the morning. Here's the title of the sermon. God is faithful and just to forgive. To forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just. Meaning he's faithful to the promise that he gave to forgive us. Because Jesus has already done the act that has paid for the penalty of sin. And when Jesus went to the cross, he atoned for all sin, meaning that he's also just. God didn't just overlook sin, he was just, and that that sin was paid for. All sin, your sin, past, present, future, was all paid for at the cross. Which is why Jesus is not bothered when we come to him in confession. He enjoys it because in drawing near to him, he has the joy of forgiving and cleansing once again. The staff is currently reading a book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. just came out this year. And the premise of the book is based on the fact that the only time in the Bible Jesus describes his own heart The only time he describes his own heart, he uses the words in Matthew 11, gentle and lowly, that he deals gently with sinners when he restores us, and it's his wish and joy to do so. Ortland writes in the book, quote, when you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you're not going, you're going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. How often do we think that when we sin and we're full of shame that we need to run from God and hide this from him when the truth is that we are called to draw near to him and be restored by him? Often when we sin, we want to create distance, again, out of shame, but God wants us to close that distance out of his merciful love. No loving parent wants their child to feel too ashamed to come to them when they mess up for that love and restoration. How much more, then, is God calling us to himself? One commentator put it like this, confession is like a good shower. Every time you take a good shower, let it remind you of this passage. A good shower after a messy job, not only does it remove the dirt, it cleanses us afresh once again. Confession is a gift from God when we bring darkness into light. So brother and sister, if there's nothing else you remember this morning, maybe you need to remember this. God is not ashamed of you when you confess your sin to him. He's proud of you. And he's faithful and just to forgive. 
Very quickly, third appeal, last verse, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We only need to spend a couple minutes here because um, John is saying very familiar things in these three appeals, and yet there are some important distinctions, and that there's a progression from verses 6 to 8 to 10. Verse 6, first, if we say we have no fellowship in sin, we are shown to be liars. Second, if we say we're without sin, we self-deceive, we lack truth. And now third, if we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar. And John concludes his third appeal by saying his word is not in us. And when he uses the word word there, it could have a double meaning. Again, for believers, it means a general reference to Scripture, to sound doctrine, which is to say that his word is not affecting our belief and our conduct. It's not being a lamp to our feet like it says in Psalm 119. It's refusing to agree with God when we commit acts of sin. And again, that word is not guiding us any longer. That's what it means when his word's not in us. And it could also imply being that John loves to refer to Jesus as the Word, that it's a refusal to see sin as it really is. It's a refusal to see ourselves as we really are, sinners in need of a Savior. And we reject Him, and He's not in us. But this third appeal that concludes chapter 1, we will see John will continue this train of thought into chapter 2 next week. But when we stop there this morning and we remember that Julia Shears wrote a feature for the New York Times saying that she will not raise her children with the concept of sin due to her own upbringing in an abusive church environment, we need to know that exposes two ways to get sin wrong. Again, one, to not teach it at all. But then two, to teach about sin without the grace of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, the Bible does neither. It teaches about sin while also offering the remedy for it. And if you're not currently, have never trusted your life to Christ, I implore you that when we run from God and hide in our sin and try and cover it up, He is not in us and we are not in Him. But when we come to Jesus to confess our sin, He cleanses and He restores How can it be? Because God is light, and there's no darkness at all in him. None. I'm going to finish with another quote from Gentle and Lowly, then we'll pray. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. If we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will be his lamb-like tenderness for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, forgive us for so often choosing other narratives, other stories in this world over your word. Forgive us for choosing to believe that which is not of you in place of what is of you. And so, Father, I just pray for everyone here this morning, for everybody listening that your grace would fall upon us, 